0: Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Barr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us. Great episode we have today. I had a really fun chat with comedian, circus performer, and data scientist, Andrea Jones-Roy. It's a very fun chat. They are so cool, and I learned a lot listening to them. And if this is your first time with us, check out enhanced episodes from the last year on our YouTube, youtube.com slash there it is. All episodes are going up there, but the ones from the last year or so have been enhanced by Brother of the Show, and those will go out later in the week, like this one goes out later in the week. But if you would rather listen to episodes while you are on your commute You can. You can listen to every episode of the podcast wherever you get podcasts. Well, let's get on to today's episode. We have a really thrilling chat here, and I learned a lot. It's also a lot of fun. Here's my chat with Andrea Jones-Roy.
1: I really loved Big Magic. It was really inspirational, and one of the things that I hadn't heard anyone else describe the way she did, but I completely agree, was about when you get an idea, when, when the muse strikes you. You do have to just get to it. Yeah, you have to because otherwise it goes away. And yeah, had this amazing story about an idea she had was a very specific book idea, and she kind of hemmed and hawed on it and didn't get around to writing it. And then a friend one day, another writer said, "Oh, I've got an idea for a new book." And the person went on to describe the exact story, Mm. Mm. and it and it was sort of like, "Oh, wow, big magic! It's real." Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's like the idea is out there. You just have to grab it, basically. Right. Interesting.
1: Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Gosh. All right. Well, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm like on my high horse from having written today. It's like, oh, I got to write tomorrow and the next day. Like anytime something occurs to me, not just like <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. No, I've done that. Right? Like you're falling asleep and you're like, oh, I'll remember this in the morning. And it's like, nah. It's
1: gone. Oh, you never do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never remember when I think of something when I lay my head down. Yeah, uh, You know, sometimes you got to choose sleep.
2: Yeah, (laughs) that's also fair. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or you write
2: something down and then I've done this too. And then the next morning you're like, what does that mean? I don't know. Like, oh yeah. (laughs) If it's the middle of the night. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for people who will burn the midnight oil, Mm. but I've recently realized and as you could probably see, I'm a big Prince fan. And you know, that's what he did. He barely slept and he would stay up all night. That lifestyle is part of what killed him. So (laughs) maybe I don't need to emulate it.
2: That's an interesting point. And same with
1: Michael Jackson.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Wow. So put it together that way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so when I hear like Donald Glover is doing stuff like that, where he's just like up and barely sleeps, I'm like, well better to probably just take care of yourself first yeah no
2: yeah I don't know about Donald Glover but I imagine that yeah if you're gonna go that long without sleeping you're obviously well not obviously but involved in various substances and I know that was a part of the story with Michael Jackson and Prince not the only part but yeah 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 Yeah. no I used to play that game too I would like grad school-ish it was like a sign of dedication to just be up all night and it's like then you just feel sick for days. And (laughs) I don't know. Right. I'm the same. I'm trying. My my temptation is towards that, but I'm trying not to. So, but I'm not much of a morning person either. So it mostly just means I like, I wake up and I'm late for the day. And then at night (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm tired. (laughs) So something has to give.
1: We have the same brain. I'm a night owl by nature. And I do want to get up and get started on the day. I'm not necessarily a morning person, but I'm not someone who hates the morning. I actually Mm -hmm. enjoy certain parts of the morning but it, I am dragging every morning and yeah. it just makes me feel late for everything.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or if I do want to, you know, the various writing advice, you know, morning pages and all of that, where it's like, write for bird by bird, like write first, wake up, start writing. Like if I do that, I wake up so late that I'm just like, well, I can't meet anyone. Like you're my first meeting of the day, you know, like, cause I can't. <laughs> and then I'm like, that's not how you function in society. So, Yeah,
1: uh, yeah it's i gotta find a rhythm that actually works and there's talk out there of of saying you don't have to stick to this rhythm that they say this rigid Mm -hmm. system of well you got to start working in the morning like if your creative brain kicks off at night then you can write then that's fine yeah yeah but i also want to incorporate being good to myself so I Mm -hmm. can be healthy
2: (laughs) right right incorporate you know staying alive (laughs) yes that's ideal
1: that's ideal yeah
2: Yeah, not to be a real goldilocks about this but uh I'd like to not be dead so
1: (laughs) well uh, in the six years I've been doing this podcast I have had some amazing multi-hyphenates on Mm. but you have to be the most interesting Multi-hyphenate, your multis, the the range is more than any I've seen. You're comedian, My. circus performer, data scientist. I, I don't, <laughs> I can see a couple <laughs> of those working together, but then you get thrown for a loop. You're also, of course, an author and professor and public speaker. Uh, very cool. This is how we came to find out about you. Girlfriend on right. the show, Justina and I. Uh, found you because you recently did a show at Caveat about data science. Yes. It was a very exciting... We didn't actually get to go. We had to watch the live stream, Mm. but we couldn't be in person. But I wish we had been in person because you did so much. You started with circus performing. it like interstitially, I guess it was throughout the show. And then it's funny. And then it's also very informative because it's about data sciences. And it really... It all was so great, but the the point you were making about data science was also so intriguing to me
0: Hmm. because I
1: hadn't heard anyone made that, you're very welcome. I hadn't heard anyone make the point you were making because so many people, as you were saying, will say, well, what does the data say? Well, the data says this, but you are making the point that the data doesn't speak. Right. (laughs) Data is not a person right we read data people read it you you were like I can speak yeah oh you're not (laughs) listening to me (laughs) yeah can you unpack this a little bit of what what your feeling is on data science and how it should be used
2: sure well I'm so excited to talk about all of these things so thank you for the the kind words and like any true artist you know the longer it's been since like, you know, you perform a thing or submit a thing or, or set something out in the world, the more you're like, was that a huge waste of everyone's time? It might've been. So I really appreciate uh, <laughs> your words against my own uh, self-destroying brain. I would say that the big thing with data science is that we think of the world as data-driven, and that's the word that you see everywhere, data-driven journalism, data-driven insights, data-driven blah, 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 right? and I think we have it all backwards. We drive data. Data is just, as you said, it's just numbers that are in a spreadsheet or a table or a matrix of some kind, and we put them there. Data doesn't exist out there in the world. Like There's a distinction between data and capital T truth, and I think we conflate the two. We think, oh, what does the data say, as in what's the, the true mirror of reality? When in fact, this is like way more philosophical than I intended to be. I didn't, I have to say, I didn't come on here expecting to say true mirror of society or of reality, (laughs) but here we are. I love it. Uh, Yeah, So, so data only exists because we've said, oh, that's a thing out there that I want to measure or know more about or observe or examine or compare. And so I'm gonna write that down, whether it's the temperature or the number of people running a race or the types of skills that are on my team in the workplace, whatever, right? So I'm writing those things down and therefore the data only exists because I have said, okay, this is worth turning into data. And then we look at those numbers and we decide what the story is that we want to tell based on those numbers. We can say, oh, wow, these numbers are super different from these other numbers. Is that interesting? Well, I'll decide. Am I going to do something about it? Well, that's for me to decide. Oh, this is going up. Should we keep doing what we're doing if we want it to keep going up? Is it going up for some other reason? Is it going up, but not enough to really pay attention to? And so we turn, numbers and trends and, and insights, you know, an insight only exists because we've looked at some numbers and said, well, that's interesting because it's somehow a departure from or a confirmation of what I think is going on in the world. Anyway, that's a long way of saying, yeah, we think data comes first and the rest of us are following, but that's like driving through the rearview mirror.
1: Right. It's very cyclical. Yes. Uh, we, we are the reason that it is what it is. It's sort of like when a politician uses rhetoric just to fire up the base or mm. to just just to stir the pot and get some attention, and then everyone gets frothed up and riled up, and then the campaign team for that politician will say, "Well, everybody's saying this. I yeah, I guess this is what I need to reflect." It's like, "No, they got it from you." Yeah, like, you started that like it's yeah." Not, it's not that because that's what everyone thinks? They think it, they're just saying it because you said it.
2: Right. That's why and they now believe it. you're saying, it. well, they're saying it. So here we go. Right, yeah. right. Exactly. I also have to commend you on the word frothed up. I haven't heard that. Uh, with respect to humans in politics. I was like, that's a very generous way to put a lot of people screaming and yelling. And
1: <laughs> like, I'm frothed
2: up, I don't like it. It's like a little cappuccino society.
1: <laughs> I guess that is, they're, they're, they're foaming at the mouth for sure. Right, yeah, frothed um, <laughs> up
2: in like a rabies way, <laughs> not like a macchiato way, got it. No, right.
1: Yeah. But it is it is so interesting because there is an importance, I mean, Obviously, you're not anti-data science because that's what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Because a lot of people might get on the internet who are not people who've ever studied data science, and they'll get on and and poo-poo the numbers Mm. and poo-poo the data as if it just means absolutely nothing and we should ignore it. But it's not that it should be ignored. It just should be framed appropriately, and we're not currently framing it appropriately.
2: Exactly. You continue to put... I should have had you do my show because you're putting it all much better. I feel like my version was a much more foamy, ranty kind of way. Like in another thing, whereas you're like, here's the way we should reframe it. That's, that's a very good way to put that.
1: Oh, Yeah, okay. I think. Use it. You know, use it if you do. The I'll, I'll use it. Yeah,
2: great. I'm so glad we're recording this conversation. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to overlay everything you say on the recording of my show and then be like, that doesn't line up, but all right. I I agree. And I think that sometimes I worry that my coming out hard on like nothing is data driven, data does not equal capital T truth, all that stuff. I worry a lot because if you take it even a tiny bit out of context, I sound extremely anti-science and I am, you know, one sound bite going viral away not to flatter myself from being like the hero of the climate deniers and the pandemic is a hoax (laughs) and the ivermectin movement and all of those other things. But it's exactly as you said is that I think, and this is kind of one of my theses that I'm I'm messing around with a little bit is that I think both sides, not to be hyper-political about it, but the kind of like we believe science side and the I did my own research side of things have it wrong. And exactly, I mean, the numbers are there, the CDC data is there, for example, and to name some data that we're all arguing about all the time. It's not perfect. There's selection bias, there's measurement problems, there's definition. There's all kinds of issues with that data, right? The same thing with the data about how, whether the vaccines are killing us or, or whatever, right? But the fact that one side is saying, no, this data is perfect, this is the truth, and we need to do the following policies, is leaving the door wide open for others to say like, actually the data is not perfect and they have a point, but then they say, because it's not perfect, I'm gonna reject the whole thing wholesale. Whereas really both sides need to be like, these numbers aren't perfect, they're our best bet at understanding what's going on. We can think about how to make them better and how to make more thoughtful inferences. We're probably overestimating this and underestimating that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we could both actually come to conclusions that make sense. It's like, because we're like, no, this is correct. And we have to believe it. I think it's just inviting the the kind of skepticism that we're seeing. So I, I, I do try to think about how to reframe it though because a lot of times I'm just like, the whole point of science is to be wrong. And it's like, well, I believe that, but I need to, I need to preface it <laughs> somehow and be like, but it's still the best we've got, right? Maybe that, maybe right.
1: that's the way. Yeah. That's a good point because that is the thing I have heard a lot of scientists say or a few scientists say is this isn't truth the way we talk about truth. And or and it's not theory the way people mm. use the word theory colloquially. Right. Like the average person says, well, a theory can just be this person's idea versus... A- where right. that's not in, in science the way theory is used, per se, right. right? So there there is some confusion there with the technical use of the terms and the layperson's use of the term. Yes. <laughs> so I get that. That's a very good point. It's all very interesting because you then start seeing, like, like with COVID, because you mentioned COVID and how people talk about the numbers with COVID and the data with COVID. I've seen people say, well in Florida Hmm. the numbers are blah 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 and in New York well look at this spike and it's like well Omicron and then also there are eight over eight million people in a 30 square mile area like it's it's probably indoors
2: more yeah
1: (laughs) right we're on trains together the num, you know so you can't really compare that to a place way bigger like Florida.
2: <laughs> and we're probably also getting, I don't know for sure, but we're probably also getting tested a lot more because for me, right. you know, I walk around and I cough once and I say, okay, test time, right? Whereas right. if you're in Florida and you're you living as though the pandemic's over, you're probably not gonna go say, I'm gonna get a nasal swab just for fun. So I would right. imagine that, the, I mean, Trump himself, now I'm becoming super political, I'm getting frothy again. Trump himself <laughs> said that, made a point that was a very valid point, it was a horrible policy, but it was a valid scientific point, which is like, wow, the numbers will go down if we stop testing so much. You're like, oh, that's true. Like he's not wrong about that. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that, you know, there still is a capital T truth out there. People are sick and people are dying. But the numbers right. are going to look different depending on how we interact with that truth, right?
1: Right. Yeah. His weird use of pragmatism was so strange. <laughs> like it yeah. could have been so helpful. Yeah. For someone to say, like, all right, everyone, let's not get alarmed. The numbers are what they are because we're Testing so much you know that would have been a much right. more valid way right. of, of phrasing it right. for people to just to calm people because it's like it's the public and you don't want to alarm the public but you do want them to be cautious right. and that's why the way he did say it was sort of like oh you're not helping
2: right right yeah, like this <laughs> is, this- yeah it's one of those where some comedian not not me has some joke that's like every fifth thing trump says is right which makes it like he'll be like we should stop getting tested. The numbers will go down. LaGuardia sucks. And everyone's like, well, I do agree with that. Like, does that mean that the other crazy stuff is right? Or, But it, yeah, out of context. I mean, if you go to, I don't know why I was there, but I was on the Clorox bleach website the other day. Why was I there? I didn't buy bleach. Anyway, it still has a warning that's like, do not inject this in your veins. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is because our president, anyway, I'm sure we don't need to.
1: <laughs> we don't need to relive those. random rave but... about that. Yeah. <laughs> But it is an interesting thing because now with so many at home tests and people aren't all you connecting it to the app, they're just doing the swab and uh, the numbers can be thrown off that way. Right. Like in where I'm from, South Carolina, people, just like you were mentioning in Florida, they're probably not saying, Oh, I sniffled. Let me go. Just make sure. Uh, They're not doing that as much uh, because they don't, there's so many people in South Carolina who are, who are deniers right. and naysayers of all of it. So they're not getting tested as much unless it's serious enough that they have to go to the hospital or something right. like that, <laughs> probably, right? Right. But then also some of those at-home tests that people are taking here are maybe not as accurate. So the numbers are definitely not accurate. That's one of the things you kind of talked about in the show that you did Yeah, was that one of the factors when it comes to data is human error Mm -hmm. or other kinds of error. It was a very well thought out and also funny show. And one of the things I want to talk about is how do you take something that's like data science? I mean, it's not not the same- It's not fun. I mean, I think it's fun, but it's not- (laughs) Right, the average person can get into comedy about politics because it it creates such a strong emotional feeling for them. Data science, the average person doesn't have a feeling about. So how do you still make fun comedy out of it? I thought you did a really interesting thing with it. Can you kind of talk about how you found humor and how you decided to present it the way you did to make it more jazzier and fun?
2: (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, it's, I wish I could say, well, you know, there's this recipe that I follow, and every three minutes you have a joke or whatever, and I'm not that methodical. But it's, I would say, a mix of my own, well, I think the driving force of the show is that I'm frustrated, because I feel very lucky to have gotten exposure to data science and quantitative methods largely by accident in my life. I enrolled in a program not really knowing that it was a science program. I thought I was going to write essays, and so it just kind of got forced into it. And since then, I I feel like I look around the world, and I talk to, so I teach at NYU, uh, so undergrads in data science, and I do speaking with companies, and I do consulting and things like that, and I see people getting it wrong, not like because they're dumb, but just because the way we talk about it is in- inaccurate, right? And so I went through this long program where I learned to be very humble and careful and every single number is, is a subjective approximation of reality. And like, I feel very grateful that I got access to that information. And then I stepped out of academia and was like, whoa, we're talking about this in a very different way. And so mm. I say all of that to say that I, I think humor can come from emotions of any kind and i think if i weren't so worked up about it it might have been harder to make it funny you know like you said with politics we we have opinions we have feelings we have you know attachments and and, I, and all of that and so i think it's part of the reason that i you know am able to like rant and rave about something as mundane sounding as data science is that i actually am really mad about it <laughs> and frustrated you know and i see the sides talking past each other it's not like i have some vision into reality that others don't. It's just that I feel like I did, you know, luck out and spent 10 years learning from statisticians about how to think about numbers. And then it's just like, there's just a big disconnect between how it's talked about in the world and and what's going on in the, like the sciences or whatever. On the other hand, I would say that I also am someone who's very easily bored and I've been teaching data science for a very long time. So I taught at NYU Shanghai and Carnegie Mellon before being at NYU New York. And I taught uh, political science, but like a very quantitative version of political science. And then when data science took off, I decided, oh, if I want to keep having a job, I'll just call myself a data scientist. And so now I teach data science, but it's the same thing basically. Right. And you know, I'm going to get fired, but that's basically what's going on. <laughs> and I've just talked about it, talked about it, talked about it forever. I mean, I've taught for maybe 10 years and I've spoken to to companies about this kind of stuff many times over the last few years. And for my own, I still think it's important, but for my own... Sanity, you know, watching a show that someone is obviously enjoying doing is always more fun. And reading a book that someone hopefully enjoyed writing is more fun. And so I selfishly put it in just so that I can keep going with it because I do think it's important. And otherwise I'll get bored out of my mind. I mean, the flip side is that I actually got a student evaluation last semester. Student evaluations are horrible things and they're just very personal attacks. And uh, one student told me that I, I put in too many jokes and I was so upset. <laughs> and I barely put any jokes in my classes, but it's like for my own sanity, you can only talk about standard deviation so many times until you lose your mind. And so okay. I try to liven it up a bit, but apparently they didn't like it. So I got to tone it down. Or interesting, just yeah.
1: Yeah, those, uh, I always tried to be kind with those. And they are mm-hmm. probably a couple of people I should have been a little bit more honest about. Uh, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> Is yeah, that, I'm convinced
2: they've gotten meaner over the years, but maybe I'm just getting worse. I don't know. <laughs> I
1: would believe it when you look at the tone on the internet and how mm. gripey everybody is, and something doesn't even have to be true for yeah. it to resonate with people. It just has to be very angry or mean-spirited. Yeah. It's uh it's a sickness that we're going yeah. to feel Well, like.
2: I also have an idea that this is sort of not particularly well supported, but I have an idea that we wrongly think that in order to learn, we have to suffer, and you know we have these ideas of like sitting in a lecture and it being boring and dry, and somehow that equates with greatness and genius. And so I think, and I don't know if this is, you know, the kids these days are getting more. I mean, there is documented, you know, increased anxiety, but maybe just more thoughtful measurement of anxiety. Who knows? Among younger people now, and rightly so, if that is true because of the pandemic and all these other things. And so I can see how students who are like, well, I'm paying a fortune for this. And I don't know if I'm going to get a job. And if I don't get a job, I'm going to be in debt forever. And all the pressure about having an internship, every waking moment and all these other things for someone like me to come in. And well, I'm not going to, like, I'm not that funny in class. Once per lecture, have a joke about like a, a horse data set that we're using that I think is ridiculous. and And I could see how that would almost be insensitive if you're like very anxious about your future. But all of that is to say, is that when we think about learning, we think about relatively dry material. And so I'm, you know hoping to change that at time, but I'm not the only one doing that. Lots of people are doing like cool science comedy and stuff like that. So.
1: Yeah. And you know, when I was in college, I had a couple of teachers who had a good sense of humor and say something funny. So I, if someone's complaining about it, it's yeah. their personality. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, what yeah. are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, everyone's seen the Amazon. I, I kind of enjoy looking at Amazon reviews because I feel right. like I've gotten good at deciphering what what is significant here you know the, right because they're almost all five or one star reviews right exactly very, there's very little nuance <laughs> yes you need the nuance
2: <laughs> yeah and that's the selection bias right there right you won't yeah. bother to write a review if you're passionately in love with or desperately hate whatever right. it is that you're doing and so the same is true for teaching evaluations it's the ones who are irritated i gave them an a minus who are like and another thing about your fundamental personality <laughs> that i don't yeah. like. You're like oh okay and they're not fun like amazon reviews because they're not public so amazon reviews they sometimes try to be like funny or whatever so they can end up on reddit but not these they're just grim
1: <laughs> true yeah <laughs> they just want to hurt
2: they're uh, really mean <laughs> that's what you wanted to talk about right trump and teaching evaluations <laughs>
1: Well, let's talk some more about what you do because uh, when it comes to data science, because you've mentioned a lot of the jobs you've had, mm. but you've also worked at five thirty-eight, which if you're looking on Twitter, there's controversy <laughs> always every political yep. season about it. And I'm wondering your perspective on the way people talk about the way 538 talks about data or the way people talk about the data 538 is bringing mm. to uh, to light because it it, it seems like it, there's a lot of overlap with what you're talking about in the response to 538.
2: Yes. It's so funny you mentioned that because I think, you know, it happens almost weekly at this point uh, but I think Nate Silver is trending currently. Uh, or at least on my whatever algorithm right. results I'm being fed. Uh, but it could be because every time Nate Silver clicks on it, I read everything because I'm yeah. very interested. So so I did work at 538 for about a year and a half uh, leading up to the midterm 2018 election. So a while ago. And I... I, Okay. I. There are really great people there. They're doing really interesting and important work in a lot of ways. I think they do still struggle with, and they were very open about it and they've been open about it, uh, and I didn't have an answer for them. Struggle with talking about numbers in a thoughtful way. And that can take the form of where data comes from, which is sort of what I tend to focus on. It's like, where do these numbers, why, why do we have these numbers in the first place? What do they mean? And I think 538 errs a little bit too on the side of trusting data as capital T truth. I mean, they're in journalism, and so fact checking means. We have a 36 written here let's check with the u.s government records and make sure that that's a 36 okay it is but my point as a scientist is like yeah but the real number probably isn't 36 doesn't mean we throw it away but it's noisy you're over oversampling or we're missing something or whatever Uh, but they also really struggle and again to their credit very openly about how to communicate probability and humans are famously bad at making sense of probability if you say something is a 90 percent chance of happening and it doesn't happen, everyone is like, well, it didn't happen, you're wrong. And you're like, well, 90% is not 100%, right? And the same if it's 10%, you're like, well, you said 10% of cancer, why do I have cancer? So, so they struggle with that and I don't think that's a their problem. More recently, I think they have run into some trouble that other data scientists run into as well, which is in our enthusiasm about working with data and numbers and our hubris, and I put myself in this category as well, of saying, well, I know machine learning and I know how to make predictive models and I know how linear regression and blah, 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 all these things work. I'm therefore suddenly an expert in every field that I've got data on. And I think Nate, for example, at least today and in the past has gotten in trouble for weighing in on public health policies. And in the past, he said things like, I'm not a public health health expert. I think his bio right now says I'm not a virologist, not that I'm reading his bio every day, but I did read it today. And he says these things, but then he comes out and says, well, you know, the mask mandate is this, or it doesn't do that, or we don't need it, or whatever. And that's a problem with data scientists generally. Something that I am guilty of for sure is that, as as I said in the beginning, I I trained as a political scientist. I, I think I have a pretty good understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of a lot of political data, including the polls that 538 uses, and there's a lot of weaknesses there, but we don't throw it away, and I don't think we should. But I don't have that kind of expertise when it comes to economic data, psychological data, certainly COVID related data. Uh, A friend of mine is is dealing with cancer right now and looking through various like cancer research, you know, journal, various medical journals. And I even had the audacity to be like, I'll take a look and tell you what I think. Like I shouldn't, right? Just because I know what numbers are and how to think about numbers doesn't mean I know the substantive implications of all those different fields. And I think the whole 538 and Nate Silver thing, I think they get into a lot of trouble when they step outside the sports and politics worlds where they do have a lot more knowledge. And I think also people just like hating on Nate because he can often sound like a know-it-all. And yeah, we have too many know-it-alls in the world. I, I like, I'd like some more humility myself. I keep being like, right. I'm going to get fired, but like I don't work there. So <laughs> I'll say it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, you make a very good point. Cause there are a lot of people and you mentioned the sports world. There are a lot of sports journalists mm-hmm. who will, just kind of look at somebody's stats and then say, oh, well, they'll not do that. They're not going to do this. They're not going to do that. They, they blah, blah, blah. And it's, that's not how playing the game works.
2: Right. Right. And And, I'm not a sports person. So I, I shouldn't go too far in this, but another idea I'm currently thinking about is like the whole money ball revolution in baseball, right. Where they're like, Oh, let's just measure these various other stats and put together the world's greatest teams that there ever were and that's cool my understanding is that that's made baseball even more boring than it already was i don't know if you're a baseball person but that's like one of I'm the big not... takeaways it's like no one's <laughs> getting on base anymore but the <laughs> other piece of this for me anyway is that that whole revolution is goes back to this idea of data driven and it was someone's uh, billy bean is that his name uh the dude who the thought person. of the whole Moneyball stats mm-hmm. revolution in baseball as a strategy that's an idea that led all of that. And then he decided to look at all of those numbers and assemble teams in that way. It wasn't the case that all of a sudden these numbers appeared and said, "You know, get people who are going to get on base, right? It was an idea. And so again, I think we lose sight of the fact that it's ideas that drive all of these things. And data is just a tool. Exactly. And 538 could, could stand to have a few more ideas that they then test as opposed to like stare at some numbers and say like, yeah take the masks off the planes. You're like, you're being a little cavalier about that.
1: <laughs> right, right. Because right. I I think what some people say, and, and they'll also say like, well, the CDC said, so mm-hmm. I don't need to wear masks. But the thing is, they're not considering what might happen if we all just stop wearing masks right? and how that will change the data. Right, right. <laughs> and,
2: and understandably, it would make sense that you would hit this kind of churning equilibrium where it's like, we all take our masks off because the numbers look good, whatever we decide that is. And then indeed the numbers creep up. So we put our masks back on and then we go down and we go up and mix in vaccines and, and seasonal behavioral pattern changes and, and all this other stuff. And, and again, I think it goes back to our messaging around science where we, we treat it as this like static grail, holy grail of correctness, when really it's, it's us doing the best we can with the information we have right now and needing to be humble and knowing that that's gonna change. And exactly as you said, I think in general, we're very bad in science and frankly everywhere at understanding this endogeneity, which is like the circular causality, which is if I take my masks off, that's gonna change the numbers, which might affect what we have to do with our masks. And we're just not good at communicating that. We're not good at thinking about that. I'm bad at that in my own life, right? I'm like, well, I'm not wearing masks anymore and I just don't no matter what, but that doesn't make sense,
1: right? Right, It, it just depends on so many factors and it's yeah and now at this point it's so confusing people don't know what to do right.
2: you
1: know it's it's sort of like well I I guess I'll wear a mask and then you go in and and it's just like two other people there so you go I guess I'll take off the mask right. I don't know <laughs> like I feel right. silly wearing it now it's just so yeah I just hate COVID and I want it to yeah. go away
2: same. No, it's it's totally become so much more a social signal and a political signal than, at least for me, which is a big departure from a lot of social scientific models where we all make individually optimizing, hopefully, decisions, right? It's actually about what other people around me are doing. And if I walk into a room and everyone else is wearing a mask, I'll wear a mask, right? This mm-hmm. is setting aside, you know, various rules around there. But I, uh, I'm i from Maryland originally, and I went there, when was I last there, over, over like kind of New Year's time. And in New York, we were still masking all the time, and in Maryland, and I'm from Western Maryland, which is like basically West Virginia. So as you, you might imagine, right. we all burned our masks down there. You know, like we <laughs> actually never had any, right? <laughs> it's like not
1: <laughs> they something that's going on to, to burn them. Yeah.
2: Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just to keep New York and those other coastal elites from having them. Yeah, and so I would go into a, Yeah. Yeah. I would go into a store wearing a mask out of habit. And then I'd be walking around and realize no one else was wearing a mask. And I was like, well, if no one else is wearing a mask, that's an even bigger reason to wear a mask. You know, and I live with like my, I was visiting my older parents, all that stuff. But then I was like, no, they're going to think that I'm some like liberal Biden loving whatever. And I'm going to get, you know, beaten up or people are going to yell at me. So I should take it off. And so it ended up becoming this whole like, what do I want other people to think of me as opposed to what do I think the public health story is about?
1: Yeah. And that, I think... I think a lot of people are feeling that, and it's very yeah. difficult. And it, uh, so much of it is a response to how, the situation, it's, yeah. and and not the situation health wise, but the situation socially. You know, right. I don't want to be seen as afraid of it. Right. And right. I mean, that was one of the big things with Joe Rogan, right? Like it was he was he freaked out at first, like everyone else was wearing a mask everywhere, and then he didn't like feeling freaked out so he said I'm not going to wear a mask and like I'm not going to be afraid of it but then when he gets it he throws a kitchen sink at it because he was still afraid right and not being honest with himself and if we could all just be honest with ourselves and say here's where we're at right now and this is how airborne diseases work right so I guess a mask makes the most sense until it goes away then right. i think we'd be in a better in a better place but
2: right well and i think that the and i am this is not an innovative or or thoughtful point at all but i think the fact that we're in a world and maybe we always have been ever since mass media existed but we're in a world where we all have about one or two sentences to say our piece is not exactly conducive to what you just you know all us all being as thoughtful as you just described where you say well here are the trade offs and here's what i know and here's what i don't know and so here's what my like that can't fit in a tweet that can't fit on tiktok
1: now, and if you try, no one's going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Having tried. Oh, yeah. yeah. No one likes the nuance. And if you say one thing just to, like, set up or frame yeah. what you're about to say, then someone's already, like, jumping in and saying, well, what about this and da da, 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 da. And it's like, no, right. I'm not saying that because I haven't even finished my thought. Like, right. Just, just right. give me give me more than two seconds to speak, please. It's, right. That's, that's all really interesting because people wouldn't think that any of that would have to do with data science but right. it 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 has so much to do with data science right yeah it sounds like a of problem factor. of
2: politics but yeah it's a problem of literally every piece of information i mean look at the debates on, i mean a lot of them become politicized but the the numbers around climate change like we're not looking at different numbers i mean we might be prioritizing different data sets or different studies but the numbers are there and we're telling very different stories about them and coming to different conclusions about them. Right. And and one of the points I make in the show, and that I make all the time when I talk to everyone I can, including I'll make right here, is uh is that data science is about, yes, it's about statistics, yes, it's about programming, but it's also about expertise in the subject area that you're talking about. And that's the piece where I think 538 sometimes steps <laughs> out of its its area. And I think all of us are trying to make sense of climate and 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 COVID data, and we don't have the skills to make sense. I don't have the skills to make sense of those things. And never mind the fact that stats and programming are already super hard. And by the way, that idea comes from someone named Drew Conway, this like three that that Venn diagram where it was like we need programming and we need stats and we need expertise. And the folks with expertise, if they're not trained in programming or stats, often think they have nothing to say on the data side of things. But I would love to have, you know, more again, public health or climate experts who maybe, or even like, you know, people who understand interventions in local communities to change behavior, I would love to see them weigh in on climate change, but instead we see a lot of like, well, if you haven't been a data engineer your whole life, then we don't wanna hear what you have to say, right? And so it's like, no, we have to think. That's basically the whole point. It's like, (laughs) we forgot that data science involves thinking, I think is what it all boils down to.
1: Right, it's not just looking at the numbers and then the person who understands how the numbers are put together making all the decisions right it's everyone sort of saying okay well that makes me think blah 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 you know it's uh things that's you know going back to COVID not to over talk about that but that's one of those situations where you kind of have to do that based on where you are it's
2: yeah
1: you know in South Carolina it didn't spread as quickly as immediately as it did in New York because it's a state that is has a three million people less than are in New York city. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's uh, about 10 times larger than <laughs> New York city. So people are spread out more, it couldn't spread as fast. So right. there does need to be a different approach, but what happens is the people who were not naysaying COVID just start mocking the people who were just not there yet. Yeah. And just didn't understand it on this, in the same level because they couldn't see it on the same level. Yeah and uh, because it was happening differently oh gosh we're all putting ourselves in such a bad place by by behavior not right. by the data right not because of whatever it's it's the behavior that's the problem
2: right well and it's and it's the basic interpretation i'm going to get the, the specific numbers wrong but my understanding is you know we would say we on the i'm going to in case it's not obvious, I I identify on the left side of the political spectrum. It's going to come as a shock to you and your (laughs) listeners. But we would say, oh, it's, you know, COVID is the most infectious airborne disease compared to all these other things. It's so much worse than the flu. It's so much worse than this, all these things. And then on the right, we would see the various protests. And I'd see the signs that were like 97% survival rate. Why are we shutting down 100% of the economy, which is a pretty good slogan. But (laughs) <laughs> both numbers are right, right? But it's the stories that we're telling around those numbers and what we think the, the ways of dealing with it or whether we sh- the extent to which we should deal with it and the trade-offs that we're making to deal with those numbers, that's a, a human, philosophical, political, ethical, sociological discussion. And that, again, right. is where I'm just like, you know, the data science, we forget, again, that, that humans collect data and science is how we make sense of that data. And there's no you know, there's no magic to it. It's just us thinking really hard about ways that we've approximated the world. And yeah. And then we see people end up in these different camps. A friend of mine, Andrew Heaton has a podcast called the political orphanage, where he tries to like take away the partisanship side of things. And he basically says it's tribalism, right? We don't even care about what the actual reality is. We're just saying, well, my team says this, and we're louder than your team. And that's where it ends, which is not how you make sense of data <laughs> never mind no
1: it's, it's yeah it's also not good for figuring out how to accomplish anything it's right. like i just wish people would step back and say hey we've been doing that for decades and it hasn't worked right so can we stop yeah. <laughs> can we stop doing that yeah well
2: and it's and again this isn't you know even remotely limited to to make arguments about data i mean it's about everything it's like if you try to understand where the other side is coming from which i'm not a psychologist but a friend of mine who is once told me that the best way to come to an agreement between two people one way that he recommends his patients is to say like i understand why this point of view is so important to you and then you have to say i understand why this right we go through this thing but if i say that about a political view that my friends and i don't have i'm immediately going to be cast out as like a sympathizer to the right or whatever right and so I don't know, <laughs> I don't know it's what we do a, about really, any of that. Yeah,
1: I don't know what, what to do about any of that either. And it's uh, it's such a mess. Yeah, it's it's not fun.
2: Like, I, I don't want to talk to Joe Rogan, but I feel like <laughs> if I had the opportunity, I would like to understand what he thinks he's doing and where he's coming and all of that stuff. Like, I feel like I mm-hmm. I would, or whoever, if it's someone I agree with who talks to Joe Rogan, like, I don't think we need more shouting matches, I guess.
1: Right. But you know what's kind of interesting? I was thinking this earlier because I don't love or hate Joe Rogan. He got a podcast and got big with the podcast and started saying some things that were a little dumb. Yeah. But I was, so I went a little less neutral on Joe Rogan, but I disagree with him on this or that, but uh, he doesn't mean harm. Right. And that's where I feel like we're in such a weird spot where even someone who doesn't mean harm, we can't talk to them.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Because yeah.
1: they've caused harm,
2: yeah. And then we're putting up a wall, right? Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. We'll never get him on that. He's a liberal. <laughs> he said some Is non-liberal things. I don't things. even
2: know.
1: Yeah. No, he's like, yeah. he's like pretty like an unbalanced liberal guy. <laughs> right. Wow.
2: It makes me think of the. There was some article somewhere, some point that was made, maybe in the last year or so, that was like, you remember all those people we canceled? Yeah, they're doing fine and they're all hanging out together over there and they have a huge (laughs) following and they're doing great. You know, I mean, the Louis C.K. Grammy and and various other uh, specific examples come up. But in general, yeah, I think I think shutting down conversations with someone because we don't agree with them, it just further isolates both sides. And yeah, even saying, you know, if if a, if an excerpt of this conversation comes out, where people
1: get mad, we're gonna get it in happened trouble. Happened to John yeah. Stewart. No, <laughs> really? people got mad at John Stewart when he made a point like that. Oh, jeez. But it's right because yeah. I hated what Mel Gibson said, and I hated mm. what Louis C.K. did, and I don't pay a lot of attention to them now because of mm-hmm. it. And this is a larger discussion that you know, like we can't get into now. But the thing I notice about both of them especially mel gibson is whenever i see them they seem like they're coming from a darker place than before mm. their controversies Interesting. they like a little light seems to be gone a yeah. little a little brightness a little the spark seems to be gone a little bit even if they can do what they do i don't mean like from a talent wise mm-hmm. their spark i mean their like spark of joy i think you're right that seems gone a little bit and i don't I I think they should be punished for the things that they did. Totally agree with that. I don't know that the way we did it made anyone else safer, anyone who could be a target for them safer. And it seems like they're just darker. And so Mm -hmm. they're not even doing better. When what we should want is for their potential, like anyone who, who could be harmed by them, to then to no longer be in danger with them right. in any way. And for them to be smarter, to have grown right. and to be better. Right. I don't think we have either.
2: No, I think you're hundred percent right.
1: Because of the way we handle it. Yes. And that's not a great place. And it's that way because of the way we handle things.
2: Yeah. I'm thinking as someone who is not a parent, I'm going to really step out of my area and say, it's mm-hmm. sign of, kind of feels like a parent who's like, oh, my kid did something bad you know, go live with your aunt. I realize that's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air
0: <laughs> plot, <laughs> which is a bad
2: example, but, uh, but you know, it's sort of like, instead of learn from your mistake, it's like, go be punished and then let's never talk about it again,
0: really. Right.
2: Yeah, right. and I think my thing with Louis C.K. in particular, again, not to like super go down this rabbit hole, but was I was a big Louis C.K. fan. And before Me I too. started comedy, he was one of the main inspirations when I was thinking about, it, I would watch his sets over and over again and I would like write down how his cadence was. And it, cause I'm a, like, cause I'm, <laughs> I don't know scientist. if that's, I'm a data scientist. So <laughs> I was like, there has gotta be a a formula I can crack here. Uh, right. And so I would just listen to his stuff over and over and over again. and went to see him live, all that stuff. And then when it happened, it was like, you know, disappointing and all that stuff. And, and, but I was like, yeah, we all make mistakes. He, he, to be fair, he talked about being a disgusting, creepy dude in every set he ever did. And so it's not like we should be shocked, but okay. You know, I love the show and all that. Uh, and he, I thought he seemed like a really good friend of women in the show, all that stuff. But then yeah. he really, I, I, I lost my, like my hope about him when he came back. And I think you're so right. I hadn't thought about it in those terms but I think you're so right that it's like he came back without that light anymore and it had been replaced by like a darkness and anger or resentment and then he just kind of doubled down on his whole shtick and kept going whereas I feel like he had especially given his power especially given his fan base he had and his talent as a comedian as a speaker as I think he's a smart dude this amazing opportunity to be like here's how like power plays out in comedy or in any world or and like men and women he like he doesn't have to make make it a big speech but he could have even a five or 10 minute opening bit about about everything that happened in a way that didn't paint him as the victim could have gone a long way towards like, actually, as you said, making life safer for the women he harmed, other women in comedy, other women everywhere, other people everywhere. Like he just, he had a moment to do something and he of all people, I think had the skills to do it and he didn't. Right. And that sucks. Yeah.
1: It does. And it does make it hard to then just, like see him out and about. So I like, that's why I don't pay attention to him anymore. But at the same time, is anyone safer? I don't think so. I don't see him uh, being, I don't know. It just seems now like, like, because I think before when he was like saying like, uh, you know, I'm a creep or whatever, it's comedy so you know he's joking. Or you think, you know, and you assume Yeah, but this is actually coming from a safe place, but then when right. you find out what he was what he had done, then you realize it, it there's not safety there. And so when he's out now and he hasn't really genuinely addressed
2: mm-hmm. that,
1: then it just that that safety is gone. And so yeah. it's like, "Oh, I just uh I don't know what this is, but I certainly yeah. I feel like maybe it's more an attack <laughs> than yeah. than uh, than it was before. You know, it's just
2: yeah. No, it's like he had that from like never mind, never mind the safety of women and and other people. I think he had an opportunity to do something just very very cool with comedy. And right. you're right that he was very open and and transparent about being gross, and we all thought it was sort of funny, but it was coming from a place of truth. And I think great comedy can come from places of real truth. And so he could have done, and I, this is a whole other conversation, but like he could have gone, you know, learned a bit from Hannah Gadsby and done something that was like actually genre expanding. And I'm going to like incur the wrath of all comedians ever. But I think that, and this goes back to your question about my show. Like, I think that comedy in itself is awesome. And I think laughing is important and all of that. It makes sense of the world. I think it's a very valuable exercise, but I also think it's an incredible tool to talk about other things. And yeah. And I do it in the way of data science. He could have done it in the way of like his own ideas about his own sexuality. I mean, there's obviously a lot of darkness there. Yeah, I don't. know Who am I to say what's right and wrong? But the way he did it seems wrong. You know, I, I feel like there's so much that he could have unpacked, and instead, you're right. He just sort of like, like went back in his shell and was like, "I'll just hold up a bigger sword." Right?
1: Yeah. It's like, like who's a bitterness. Therapist? Why aren't they doing yeah. something? Yeah, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Step it up. There's like <laughs> a, a bitterness that these guys get and they do it to themselves. Yeah. They do it to, like, they blame the reaction and the the vitriol online right. towards them, but they they brought that on themselves with their right. behavior. Right. So at some point, it, acknowledge that so that you can do right by the world yeah. and, and be a healthy member of your community and also, like, just... Clean up your own soul and your mind here, and get yeah. the gunk out. But they they are keeping the gunk in, and it's yeah. making them darker. Right, I feel like uh, it's just it's it's sad in a humanitarian way, and it's uh, from a comedy way, it's a huge missed opportunity, and then it's uh, additionally sad in a human humanitarian way when it comes to these women just feeling like, well, right. no one's listening to us; they don't care. Right, I you know that's what one of the accusers said, you know, that, well, he, the, this industry does not care. Yeah. And that doesn't make anyone feel safe in the industry. No. Whether they're around him or not. Right. And then there's also just like the reality, because I think the way people talk, this, this all sort of parallels the way people talk about data to me. The way people <laughs> talk online is they should just go away forever. Yeah. That's not really realistic. They don't puff go away. They dissipated. Right. They're no longer they're still walking the earth and they still wanna live the life that they wanna live. So you can't really control whether or not they go away because they don't go away.
2: And it's a childish way to think about it too, Mm -hmm. right? Is that like, oh, I don't like this person, make them go away. And it kind of reminds me of a, I went through a long black mirror binge Mm. until the pandemic hit. And then I was like, well, no more of that. Uh, (laughs) This is like too dark. (laughs) But there's one episode, I don't know if you're a black mirror person, but there's I've one episode where it, it, yeah, it basically is like, you know, you can block people on, on social media. What if you could block them in real life? And basically like you go through a bad breakup or you disagree with someone. And so you just block them and they just become invisible in the world and you can never interact with them again. And it's like, not surprisingly goes a bit wrong but that is what we're right. trying to do to these people. And you're right. It's like, they still walk among us and are in our right. community. It's like wishful thinking to be like, well, you're done. Right. As opposed right. to let's have a conversation.
1: Right, and I, and I understand people, I, I know people push back and they're like, well, you know, why should we have a conversation with Louis C.K. and Mel Gibson? But the thing is, they're still going to be alive and in the community. So do you want right. them to be better versions of themselves or do you want them to still be these guys who haven't gone away from the wrong stuff they did? Right. And I, there's got to be some way for them to do the work so that right. the, the rest of the community can feel like, you know, safe around them, it, it, emotionally safe around them, right. or just consciously safe around them. Right,
2: right. And
1: not have that there, you know? But even when someone does sort of apologize uh, for more minor things than what, like, Lucy C.K. Or, or Mel Gibson did, people don't accept it. So it's kind of yeah. like, well, where's... Where's going to be the desire to apologize even? So it's right. it's all a mess. Right. Uh, and it, it just comes back to how people are choosing to use the information that they've yep. gotten about someone.
2: Yep. And I was just going to say, there's also the piece of, as insofar as we have control over this, which is, we can argue, maybe more limited than we realize, but how what information do I release about myself to the world, right? And I know that I am more circumspect in my posts about my own opinions and things like that, in part because I fear backlash and I fear fights that go nowhere, or I think, you know, or maybe on the plus side, I have some humility and it's like, we don't need to just hear my hot take on this thing. How about, how about that? Right? right. Uh, But what do we do with the information we have about somebody? We definitely don't have all the information about Louis CK, right? We have some data that's been unearthed and that we've all told our stories about, but he also, you know, presumably would have preferred that that information not get out. And so if he could control his own data narrative, the story might be different as well.
1: Right. And if it happened probably 10 years prior, yeah, the, the information wouldn't have come out. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the circus performing and the comedy. I assume with circus performing, that came from you Maybe being gymnast in gymnastics or a ballerina when you were a kid and then it turned eventually turned into doing circus work. is that Yeah
2: accurate? that's a that is accurate. I actually I didn't start dance until I was in ninth grade, so like 14 which is insanely late to start dance yeah, yeah, that is. And I regret that to this day I think because I actually once I got into it I was like, I love this, oh my God, but I don't have the feet. I don't have the legs. I don't have the anything for it. And so I spent a lot of my college and early grad school years being like, okay, those days are behind me. Dance was fun, and I, I had to ballet and jazz and all that stuff. Uh, and so I got to move on and be an adult. And in grad school, I was going through uh, just a mental breakdown. After like they break you down in grad, you're like, I'm the dumbest person who ever lived. I need to, you know, hide in a hole right. and never come out. And mm-hmm. I, I, I was, I was kind of keeping myself sane through a mix of like yoga i did figure skating i did some other i did synchronized swimming at university of michigan for two years and then they were like you are too old for our undergraduate team like stop it (laughs) and i eventually found circus at this warehouse in detroit and was like well this is it this is the thing and so it's a great you're exactly right it's it's a great place to go if you grew up doing any kind of like dance gymnastics but we're not good enough to do the like the olympics or new york city ballet but still want to be at least for me it was a it was a good fit in terms of just still being physically active and using your body and and movement and all that kind of stuff and it's a it's a very nice break as anyone who knows who's into you know running or climbing whatever it is that you do it's nice to get out of your head and that's what circus does for me and so that's been pretty much my like keeps me sane and i kind of go nuts if i don't do it for a while which is weird to say because normally people go nuts and then run away to the circus well I guess that right. is what happens but yeah yeah are you a acrobatic person at all gymnastics anything no. like that
1: no I I one time in sixth grade I was standing in line and uh just goofing around did something with my feet and uh teacher walked up and said that's fifth position that's really hard to do and I was like yeah huh? I don't know I was just goofing around mm.
2: Yeah, well and done. So I,
1: I'm pretty limber, so right. I guess I could have, but I nice. never, no, I've nice. never taken a dance class beyond swing class, you know, and it, you know that's just, <laughs> yeah, that's just fun out with friends. That's right. <laughs> nothing official about that.
2: Right, man, I'm so jealous. I, I my fifth position, I I still do ballet just kind of for fun, and uh, mm. my fifth position needs some work, man. Well done. I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, I tried it the other day. and I was like, oh, I still got it. It's not quite as limber yeah. as 11 uh, year old me, but it's there. It's there. Well little done. <laughs> yeah, well done.
2: Well, and I see that with people who have like beautiful toe points and things because it's just it's your bones are either formed in a way that lend themselves to pointing or they don't. And one thing that can really help is doing ballet from the moment you can walk. Right. And then oh. kind of molding your foot in that form. But some people are just born like that, and I'm just very jealous, so. (laughs) It's the jealousy, I would say, that keeps me motivated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And did comedy come after grad school, or is that something you had started sooner?
2: I was into, like, theater and stuff. So around when I started doing dance, I was also doing musical theater and acting and performing. So I always had, like, a performy side of me. And then again, in grad school, when I was breaking down, I got very into improv, and I would come to to grad school in Michigan, and then I would come to New York for the summers and take the UCB classes and like do that whole thing. And the main reason I did improv was that I really wanted to do comedy and I had become obsessed. This sounds very boring, but in high school, I, I listened to, I'd never really heard stand up, And then I heard Jerry Seinfeld's I'm telling you for the last time. And oh, my brain great, was just like, yeah. this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to humans yeah. in the whole world. And I know it sounds so it's like being like, I like the Beatles, which I also do, right? So I'm very boring in terms of my, you know, mainstream
1: It's fair. There's a reason those guys are the biggest. Yeah, (laughs) they're legends. They're good. They're good. Yeah, they
2: they know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if anyone knows this, but like Jerry Seinfeld knows what he's doing with comedy. But I was just just immediately taken with it. And I was like, this just seems like the best thing ever. And I would play it and like speak along with it. uh, And again, memorize the cadence and all that kind of stuff. But I was way too afraid, way too afraid to do it. So I did improv instead where I was like, You're up there with a bunch of other people. You're kind of being silly. No one, everyone knows you haven't planned anything. So if it's not funny, it's like, well, you didn't plan. Of course, it's not gonna be funny, right? And so I was just (laughs) sort of like, it was safer, but I was not good at it. And it took until I was at NYU Shanghai uh, teaching political science out there and doing some improv. There was a local improv community a mix of, of expat and locals. And so we did some like bilingual stuff. I mostly did English, but they, there was some bilingual stuff, which was cool. Anyway, they had a stand-up scene. And one night I finally was like, all right, I'm doing it. And if it goes horribly, I'll just leave the continent forever and never come back. So it took being in China and knowing I could just like abruptly end my entire life <laughs> to <laughs> get up the courage to do stand-up. And then as as one does, you know, I sucked for a really long time and I even quit for a year because I was so bad at it. But then I was just, wow. again, irritated that I, was, I had given it up. So I went back, and now I do that.
1: Well, this has been a really awesome chat. We are now at the end of the episode. Right. And we got to create something together. I'm trying to decide okay. what it could be. Maybe it's another data science show or another mm. show that could attack a subject. Not attack. That's the wrong word. <laughs> but could tackle a subject the way data science was tackled in your show. Or maybe it's just how to make a show about something like data science that maybe is not the uh, topic on the first topic on everyone's mind. It's not the front of brain topic for everyone. (laughs) So how do you find ways to make that interesting and fun for people? Which of those would you like to try to do? Right,
2: I I like that last one. I like the idea of making something, either something obscure or That people think is not important or not interesting, make it something that people want to pay attention to in some way.
1: Okay. So what is the first thing? Uh, Obviously, for you, this was a subject that meant a lot to you. You're very passionate about it uh, because of the way you were seeing it talked about publicly Mm -hmm. so there's that impetus maybe that's a good start for somebody like what is a thing that you were tired of people getting wrong
2: (laughs) right yeah what are you mad about start there
1: (laughs) right and then if it's something that is either maybe the average person would be bored by or if it's something that you would really have to get the language right just to change the way people perceive it because that's, mm-hmm. that was the other wrinkle in your show was that everyone was wrong about da- the way they talk about data. So you're kind of flipping things for people. Mm. You're flipping perspectives for people. So how, once you have a subject, how do you then say, okay, what's funny or what would right. be exciting? Like how do you, what, what's your next step?
2: my actual next step in Mm -hmm. in all this uh you know as you were saying it i was like what what should i talk about next and the two that come to mind are one is a field called complexity which is actually the the map i have behind me is the logistic map which is a model of deterministic chaos and it shows that you can have chaos inside a completely closed system and still not be able to predict the outcome so it's a, a reminder that we don't know what the heck's going on And it's a field that nobody is talking about. So at least data science, I had the advantage of a buzzword, which is like, people are hearing about it. So they're kind of like, oh yeah, what is that? Even if they're not thinking about it and it's not top of mind. Complexity is a field that nobody is talking about, but that I think is awesome. And so I would love to be able to do what I my data science show, but for the field of complexity. And then the other one is a little bit more self-serving and maybe too political for anyone's appetite. But I think... Uh, something around gender, transgender stuff is also another topic that, it is more top of mind for people, but I think we're talking about it in a million different ways that are not that productive either.
1: Oh gosh, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So, and that that would have, you know, there's the element of, it's something you're passionate about. It has the element of having to change the way people think about it, but then it's also a very sensitive subject.
2: Right, right.
1: So that, is another thing uh to consider when it comes to how you present it
2: right and at least data science is not i mean it it can be and it is used in topics that are very very sensitive and personal to people but the field itself is not really known for being like related to one's identity right and so i think that's a good point that it's one thing to be sort of flippant and make jokes about data science and i think doing that about gender is very very tricky as you know as Dave Chappelle teaches us.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Among others. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. but And and then complexity, the problem is no one knows what it is. So you kind of have to sell the topic and then what Mm. it is. And I ran into that before Mm. the Data Science Spectacular, before the pandemic, I did a number of shows at Caveat about political science. And I would talk about the various types of research behind, like, why do we vote? How do we get more people to vote? What are the most, you know ethical and fair and just voting systems in the world and all this stuff that I think is super interesting. But because it's something that's personally meaningful to a lot of people, people would come in expecting like either to hear like, you know, preaching to the choir in terms of the home team or, you know, kind of policy want sort of stuff. And so I had a kind of a branding problem. So in a way, data science, again, was a little bit easier because people have heard of it, but they don't really have a strong idea about what it is. Whereas when I said, oh, I do political science, people usually wanted to come on and talk about like the latest congressional race or abortion policy. And it's like, we can talk about those things, but that's not what political science is typically thinking about.
1: Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is something you have to contend with when you're talking about something that is a hotbed topic or is just something people misunderstand. Is that you, yeah. you, you can't just go in and speak, I guess this is sort of like we were, what we were talking about before about the way the lay person sees something because you can't just go in and speak about it the way an expert understands right. it. You, you also have to think, well, first I have to explain to them that they've been defining it incorrectly this mm-hmm. whole time <laughs> Right. and then using that definition incorrectly.
2: Yeah, was sort of like, if anything, the easiest topic I could have done of the ones that I'm interested in, because it was like, people know about it, but no one is yet, I don't think, particularly wedded to a view of what it is. And it's Mm -hmm. sort of new enough and popular enough that I can sort of swoop in and be like, these are the sorts of things you've heard, here's what you should say instead. Whereas with political science, one of the issues I ran into quite a bit was, I would say things like, this is a nonpartisan show, in the sense that I wasn't there to promote the agenda of a particular party. But people would read that as like dismissive of how politics affects their lives. And that's not what I mean. I don't mean to say that politics don't affect you and that we can't, we can separate politics from ourselves. It was more like, I'm not here to raise money for the Democratic Party. But even that, you know, because it's so, they're like, all politics is personal. What do you mean you're nonpartisan? You're like, oh, God, I'm just doing math.
1: (laughs) But maybe that's (laughs) a point. I don't know. That's very interesting. Yeah, because the goings on in in D.C., we aren't really as privy to like how they really talk to each other you know how senators really deal with the president and with each other and uh try to get the language of things right what they all are doing overall is going to affect us but their day-to-day is so separate from what we see
2: yeah and i think it's mostly very boring I could be wrong. <laughs> I think it's very dull. Having looked at some data from Congress, it's not that exciting. <laughs> at least right, what we've right. chosen to measure is not exciting. Maybe the interesting stuff is uh, almost certainly not ending up in the data sets I've seen. So maybe that's- what's Well, yeah. anyone
1: who's seen C-SPAN knows that to be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. And- yeah, the big revolution in, uh, in political science and my actual, my entryway into data science methods was natural language processing. So turning text into data. And I am sure that basically it was like, oh, political scientists no longer have to listen to C-SPAN. We just take the transcript and churn it through a computer. And that's like such a relief for the field. It's <laughs> just way better. <laughs> you don't have to like read speeches or anything anymore. It's like, okay, perfect. The machines can do it.
1: <laughs> so when you're putting together a show and you want it to be fun and funny, do you kind of write your thesis or Mm. or write your dissertation so to speak and then find ways to put in humor and fun stuff exactly
2: yeah i almost always and, and sometimes i'll get in my own way and i'll try to do it backwards and it never works uh but i will normally say okay i need to write it uh i have an idea of what the interesting thing is so in in the case of the data science spectacular i actually had i think too many ideas, and I should have started with fewer. But generally, is like we have the wrong idea about what data is. Okay, and then I have to write. I have to write from beginning to end. If I start to outline and go in, it gets dry and weird. Uh, so I just have to say, like, okay, how would I start talking about this? Well, okay, what would I say? Like, very the way George R. R. Martin talks about writing stories. Not to really flatter myself, right? And then as I go, I basically for my, I, I basically try to write in what I think is funny. And sometimes it'll be like, well, what if the example we used was funny? What if we talked about this in the context of a party? Like I have a few go-tos that are, that I tend to do. So yeah. So it's very like narrative style, I would say.
1: Oh, very cool. Yeah. And, and what is the final stage? Is honing it the last stage or is there something that you even have to do after that for your kind of show?
2: Well, I—that's a good question. I am currently trying to figure out what to do with that show, and this—the the one you saw was the first time I'd ever performed it. And I would like to make it way better and tighter and adjust all these things, you know. And ideally, tour a version of it or submit it for a festival or something like that. Right. But, or
1: record and, it and and make it like a nice film.
2: That's true. That's
1: a good idea. That could be cool.
2: Yeah. Maybe I'll do that. Save myself a lot of grief booking theaters. (laughs) (laughs) But as far as honing it, I mean, you know, great art, right, is never finished. It's only abandoned. I was writing slides up until the house opened for that show. Oh, wow. So it was like there were sections that I had done before and the, you know, the circus pieces were choreographed and I had all the, the animations were in, but there was like a whole... I don't know if you if you go back and watch the recording, which I, I don't recommend, but you're welcome to the ending. There's a slide where I'm just like, what's my point? And I just have like words because I like couldn't figure out how to get it into like a thing. And so I was just like, well, the house is open. Here we go. Like, I just it's one of those where it's like I'll keep fussing with it until it's time to go. And that's just how I am with anything. You know, I'll, I'll turn something in the second it's due or like I'll if I speak at a company, they'll often say like a few days ahead. They're like, can you send in your slides? And I'm like, I can, but I'm going to fuss with these for four more days, no matter what. So you don't want me to send them in. So it's, it's maybe that counts as honing. I don't know. But I literally was like writing and starting <laughs> at the same
1: time. That's a really interesting thing. Cause it, that's like a live show you know, where yeah. it's, It can change up until the very end. (laughs) Yeah, that is certainly stressful, but it's very interesting that you, that that's part of your process.
2: Yeah, no, and then uh, to quote a a grad school professor of mine, how did he put it? He said, uh, fear focuses the mind and there's nothing more terrifying than going on stage in front of like everybody that you know to talk about the field that you supposedly study and have promised to make fun. And so it just like, you know, you you write as much as you can and you prepare as much as you can. And then in the moment you hope that like the stars align and you're able to like also perform it well. Right. And the fear really helps, but, uh, and you know, the adrenaline and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know, I I'm bad at taking that and then building from it. Like my instinct is to throw it all away and start again. Like I'm very good at like the first draft, put it out there all right, that was okay, I can make it better, but I'll just do something new instead. So I need to challenge myself to do kind of what you suggested, which is build on what I have here or put it into a, a movie version or another format or something. Cause literally I was like, cool, I did it. I'll never talk about data science again, but that's not useful. <laughs> <laughs> like now I've said it, I've said my piece, I'm gonna move on, well, that's not good
1: there it is thanks so much for being on the podcast
2: of course thanks for having me i feel like we finally solved all the issues with um you know comedy polarization (laughs) meaning of life everything else
1: well i hope so
2: yeah yeah that's what i came here for (laughs) but yeah thanks a lot this was really
0: fun hey i hope you enjoyed that thanks for listening and follow Andrea on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, at Jones Roy. There are two O's in that, Roy. Also, check out their podcast, Majoring in Everything, wherever you get podcasts, and on YouTube, youtube.com, slash Jones Roy. And there's more info on their website, jonesroy.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at ThereItIsPod, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, at ThereItIs, and follow me on Twitter, at Jason Far Jokes, and Instagram, at Jason Far Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info, links, and bio. Great episode next week. Until next time, be good to each other.
2: The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.